Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can expand your sustainable and ESG opportunities with insights from leaders in the field. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these weekly conversations about developments in this fast-growing industry. I'm very excited to welcome Emily Mazzucurati, founder and CEO at 427 Inc., as my guest today on the Sustainable Finance Podcast. 427 is an affiliate of Moody's, which acquired the company last year, and is a mission-driven market intelligence and advisory firm specialized on the economic risk of climate change. 427's mission is to catalyze climate adaptation and resilience investments by enabling the integration of climate science into business and policy decisions. Hello, Emily, and welcome to today's program. Hello, Paul, and thanks for having me. Yes, let's begin our conversation today with your description of physical and transition climate risks, and please share an example of each with our audience. Sure. So when looking at the impacts of climate change, there's two main categories of risk that corporations and investors think about. One category of risk called transition risk are the risks related to the changes that we need to put in place to transition our economy to a zero carbon economy. So that involves a range of changes in policies. It could be cap and trade, carbon tax. It could be certain mandate around certain technology, for example, um, requiring vehicles to be electric vehicles. It could also be changes to the economic environment, changes in energy prices, as well as technology changes as we develop new low carbon economy that may displace technologies that have been used in the past. Corporations may benefit or may be affected in a negative way by those changes. And that is what is typically referred to as transition risks and opportunities accordingly. When we talk about physical risk, we talk about how we are going to be affected by the changes to the environment and the physical manifestations of climate change. So we're talking about extreme weather events, storms, floods, as well as chronic changes such as heat. Um, We're in the middle of a heat wave, so this is a very timely topic for me. Um, Impacts on water stress, changes in wildfire occurrences over time, etc. There is certainly more of a risk angle um, to that, but there is also an opportunity component when thinking about opportunities to develop new technologies that will help us adapt uh, and get better prepared for the changes to the physical environment. Good, so for financial institutions and investors, how can these types of climate risk today be converted into the opportunities that you just mentioned for the future? And that's a great question. We talk a lot about risks and not not enough about opportunities. So there's a range of opportunities for investors and for banks around financing the transition and investing into new fast growing technology product companies that are positioned to succeed and to be positive agent in this transition. For example, it could be things like investing in uh, solar panel, renewable energy, green, clean tech. Those are investment um, 
themes in a way that are well known and understood that have had um, mixed um, outcomes in the past because there's a lot of dependency on policy as well, whether policy is supportive of those technologies or rather trying to uh, thwart the emergence of new technologies. So um, some of those investments may be subject a little bit to the political winds, but generally speaking, um, we know there's gonna be a need for technology and companies that support this transition and there's a lot of opportunities there. There's also opportunities and, and a need for banks and financial institutions to support investment in resilience. And, and that can be rather mundane things like supporting the, the weatherization and better installation of uh, houses, or it could be investing in large infrastructure projects that help secure the future in terms of access to water or protecting from floods. And some of those projects are um, what's called bankable. They are projects that can be invested in by the private sector or supported with private loans because they come with a stream of revenues. Other um, projects may be funded on public funds because they don't produce revenues, they're just generating a lot of public goods, public benefits. Um, but then there's opportunities to support the municipalities and the entities that may be issuing bonds to finance those infrastructure investments um, as a way to help them continue to thrive in the future. Good, so now let's explore a recent policy announcement made on September 22nd of this year by Chinese President Xi Jinping, who said that China would achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. Now, given that China is the largest emitter of carbon dioxide emissions, this statement seems fraught with both physical and transition risks. Will you zero in on some of these risks to financial institutions and investors? And you might want to uh, just give our audience a a quick description of carbon neutrality. Sure. Well, you know, I'll start by saying before we see, see this as, as fraught with risk, I think we want to start by saying it's great that the largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world is making this commitment and acknowledging the need to go to zero carbon. Um, not every large emitting country in the world has made this type of commitment. Um, now, looking at China specifically, uh, they have a set of challenges ahead of them related to uh, how to um, related to the power grid in particular and how they power their economy. And that touches on, on the same topic that we might encounter in the US and in other regions, but maybe with greater equity in China around the role of coal in powering electricity. It remains a cheap energy, at least in China, it is one of the cheapest sources of energy. Um, there's a lot of new coal power plants being built and we will need either those plants to at some point play a, a lesser role and maybe no role in the end, or we will need carbon capture and storage, a technology that allows to capture carbon emissions from burning fossil fuel and put it back in the ground um, to really come to maturity. Uh, but carbon capture and storage is not yet uh, a mature technology. It comes with a range of issues. And so there's no easy solution. And, and to your question about what we mean by carbon neutrality, it could be um, either, it, it's usually a combination of uh, rapid or meaningful decrease in emissions 
as well as the adoption of a range of technologies that will help um, take those emissions back in what's called uh, carbon sinks. Uh, and that could be as I mentioned, one technology that's known as carbon capture and storage that could be planting forest because trees absorb carbon dioxide. And there's a really nice way to reduce carbon is simply to restore and improve the state of our forest around the world. Um, and then there are new emerging technologies that are um, unproven but have great potential that remove carbon dioxide from the air and for example for some for some of them transform them transform it in water. So we don't know what the technology mix will be that will help to achieve that but sending that signal from a, such a large economy also creates uh, the signal that there will be a market for those technologies. And so that's a very important signal with regard to investors and entrepreneurs to know that they should continue to work on these topics. That's a very good point to make, Emily. I, I know I was uh, moderating a panel last week on a conference where one of the entrepreneurs who was speaking was talking about the technology that his company has developed, which is about taking carbon out of used materials and putting it into bricks and mm -hmm. it there for the long term. So that's just another example of the types of opportunities there are on the other side of the ledger. Anything else you wanted to mention? Well, I did want to talk a little bit about physical impacts as well, since you've mentioned that. And China has exposure to a range of natural um, and climate related uh, impacts. Specifically, there's exposure to typhoons on the eastern seaboard. Uh, there's, of course, a history of uh, floods in different regions, including in, in southeastern China. There are areas with high water stress. Um, there are areas where heat is going to be increasingly a problem. So China being such a large country naturally has exposure to a wide range of impacts. And this investment in carbon neutrality is also about helping themselves, right? This is going to help China because lower greenhouse gas emissions over time will mean that we'll be able to rein in some of the impacts of climate change. Um, and then separately, it's important as we invest into energy transition, clean tech, that we also incorporate in the resilience and the adaptation component, both in those new investments. It would be, of course, uh, <laughs> very unfortunate if you invested in a new, say, clean energy infrastructure that ended up underwater in 10 years. So it needs to be factored in, but it also needs to be something that's considered as a separate um, topic and uh, subject of investment and policies to make sure that the rest of the economy is prepared and resilient for those impacts. You know, you're raising a very good question or point there, Emily, because there is an additional group of countries in Europe and elsewhere around the planet that have also committed to carbon neutrality by 2050. So you've just described a couple of possible economic, physical and transition risks for these countries. Uh, for low-lying areas and uh, areas subject to floods and storms, for example, in committing their regulatory infrastructure to emissions targets 30 years forward. So another one, another example that I'll just 
put on the table for, for your comment is how might this, these types of choices uh, of committing to carbon neutrality today affect a country's credit rating for sovereign debt issuance over the next three decades? And, and that's a great question. So um, something we haven't mentioned first that I'll mention is 427 is an affiliate of Moody's. And of course, Moody's is uh, very well known for uh, its credit rating agencies, Moody's Investor Service. Um, and, and I'll say that also to put in as a disclaimer that I am not speaking on behalf of the credit rating agency, but I can speak to the fact uh, and as publicly documented in their research publications that there is a lot of emphasis right now in integrating those considerations with regard to transition and physical risk. So now to your question, um, there's different ways that sovereign credit risk can be affected by climate change. And that includes, of course, um, the fact that significant swaths of the economy or of the, the territory could be affected by physical impacts. And we have some really interesting forthcoming uh, research about that where we're gonna be providing a view of what percentage of the economy, the population, agricultural land in any country around the world is exposed to high risk from floods, heat, wildfire, you, you name it, the, the key climate hazards that we think is gonna be really helpful for investors and for banks to understand the exposure for the, for the country. Um, I also want to point to a report that was just published um, a few day, a few weeks ago, uh, jointly with um, the School of Oriental and Asian Studies, um, University College of London, led by Ulrich Volz, where um, we participated in an exhaustive analysis of the impacts of climate change on sovereign risk, and and the report shows that there is quite a bit of impact, both in terms of the long-term economic trajectory of the country, as well as extra burden on um, a country's economic and uh, public spending uh, to support the transition and to uh, rebuild after extreme weather events, invest in adaptation ahead of time, um, and so forth and so on. And so going back to this question of Europe and China and their long-term commitment to carbon neutrality, what this does is this sends a clear signal to investors and companies that the trajectory is set and it gives the private sector time to adjust to the new reality, um, adjust business models as the case may be, adjust sources of energy, technology investment, long-term strategy and business plans. And that's really important because what does the alternative look like if a country is not currently setting their eyes on long-term plans for carbon with the rate at which the climate is degrading and we're seeing more and more physical impacts, there is gonna be a reckoning in a few years, a recognition that we do need to work towards carbon neutrality. And it's a lot harder to do it in 10 or 20 years than to do it in 30 or 40 years. And so the countries that at the last minute realize and, <laughs> and start working towards carbon neutrality on short notice might experience much greater economic disruption and that would likely affect sovereign risk as well. Very good. So now let's move on to the private sector as you just mentioned, because at 427, you believe that businesses have a critical role to play in building resilience related to climate impacts if provided with the right tools and guidance. So what's in the business toolbox today, Emily, and who is providing the guidance 
on how to use these tools? Great question again. <laughs> I keep saying that, but those are good questions. Um, so <laughs> when it comes to the business toolbox, um, the very first thing that needs to happen is to understand what those risks is, to quantify the exposure. And that is the role that we play at 427, where we leverage data coming from global climate models, from the scientific community at large. We leverage data from uh, geospatial imagery and remote sensing to provide uh, corporations and investors with a very detailed view of what are the risks and the forward-looking risks, right, for any given assets that's situated on the, on the surface of the planet. Um, now, that's just the first step. The next step is to understand how those uh, how this exposure might translate in terms of financial impact and we have some really interesting work and research going on right now with our parent company um, on the analytics side moody's analytics where we work with teams of financial uh, analysts and economic modelers to understand how weather and climate has affected economic and financial outcomes in the past and therefore what we can say about the, the relationship and what the financial uh, impact will be looking forward. The third step is possibly the hardest, not that any of those is particularly easy, but understanding what are the right investments that will help protect against those impacts and prepare in a way that, that will protect the value and preferably that will also be beneficial to other stakeholders, local communities, employees, supply chain. And this is where it gets to your question of standard. There is no uh, established guidance. There is limited knowledge looking back at what works and what doesn't. And so this is an area where there's a lot of um, piloting and experimentation, a lot of desire to arrive at a view collectively within each industry on what are the things that work and don't work. Um, and ideally some kind of standards on guide of gu or guidance on how these things are done. But the reality is we need a lot more research, um, scientific research to really verify from a data-driven robust standpoint what are the responses that work and that don't work um, and avoid a situation where companies or organizations try to look good, um, feature pilot projects or initiatives that may make sense for them but may not be the right response at scale or might look good on a sustainability report but may not deliver the long-term uh, resilience outcomes that are needed. And so we're unfortunately the climate is degrading a little faster than our research is, is progressing and so that's an area that I think we need to continue to invest in uh, as a market as providers and as well as where public funds would be really helpful. That's that's very helpful now on the physical climate risk side I believe there there, there are some frameworks that have been developed uh, as of June 2019, nearly 800 public and private sector organizations have announced their support for the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, probably better known to most uh, investors as TCFD, and, and it in, including global financial firms that are responsible for assets in, ex, in excess of $118 trillion. 
This makes the TCFD the most widely accepted framework used by investors to report their climate-related physical and transition risks and opportunities in a consistent format. So Emily, how does TCFD use scenario analysis to provide forward-looking information to investors, lenders, and insurance underwriters? The TCFD is a great framework to help provide guidance on what should be disclosed. Um, so going back to the previous question on standards, it's not telling anybody how to conduct their business. It is telling corporations, financial institutions, what they should disclose related to climate risk and opportunities to inform investors of how they're addressing those issues. And scenario analysis is part of that. The idea here is we don't really know what the future is gonna be made of. There are a range of um, sources of uncertainty. The first one being ourselves, humans, <laughs> gathered in societies and, and political systems of government where we seem to not really be able to make up our mind as to whether we wanna to commit to climate uh, policies and meaningful greenhouse gas reductions or not. Some countries are doing it, we've talked about it. Some countries are not doing it. Some countries flip-flop after every election. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's a source of uncertainty because if you look 20, 30 years out, even 10 years out, we don't know what the policy environment will be like. We don't know what technology will emerge, how markets will respond, and where we will be at in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So a way to deal with that uncertainty is to look at different scenarios where maybe in one case, we uh, collectively meaningfully engage in climate policy, take on reasonable and yet ambitious targets and do what's called an orderly transition where the market and technology have, has time to, to adapt without co causing a, a range of series of bankruptcies or, or as the case may be. Whereas again, going back to my example earlier, if some countries do not um, really engage on this issue of carbon neutrality for several decades and then belatedly join the party, um, we're going to see greater impacts and understanding how a given company or portfolio of companies or other uh, financial um, portfolio might be affected is what scenario analysis help us with, where we might look at a scenario with a disorderly transition. And then when it comes to physical risk, we have... Um, Looking at the, what I call the short term in climate terms, so that would be looking one, two decades out, the uncertainty is not so much political, but it's driven by how quickly the system is degrading. And, and unfortunately, everything that we're seeing is that things are degrading faster than we, we thought and hoped. Uh, the ice is melting faster, the, the fires are burning hotter, the sea is rising faster. Um, and so that, when we look at scenario analysis, then we look at what if it's bad? What if it's worse? <laughs> um, how quickly might a city flood? And what does that mean for a portfolio of uh, mortgages, for example? So those are the type of uncertainties that scenario analysis will help capture, not necessarily predict what's expected, but help financial institutions look at a range of possible outcome and understand how those might stress their portfolios and their risk management uh, plans. That's, that's really important for the longer term. Let's talk now briefly about a shorter term focus. It's pretty clear at this point that 
in time that the COVID-19 pandemic will be with us well into 2021 and maybe beyond. So how might 427's current risk and opportunity forecasts for the next 12 to 18 months be affected by a significant increase or decrease in the rate of global COVID infection? So that's a, a good question. We're seeing an impact of COVID on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, one obvious example is most planes around the world were grounded for a few months back in the spring and the airline industry has not uh, recovered for obvious reasons, um, still not, not flying quite as much. And so that means a lot less fossil fuels get burned in the process of, uh, of flying or not flying those planes. The question of whether those changes um, are going to be permanent, uh, lasting beyond the, the, the state of extraordinary uh, state in which we are right now, or whether that is temporary and will recover or might rebound even because people will have all this pent up energy when they want to travel again and, and get in their car again. Um, that's an open question. And so the long term impact on emissions is unknown at this stage. Um, there's some arguments that this is leading to a shift in how people work, people will work from home more, um, business travel may never recover to the former levels, but we don't know that for sure. So that's one piece. The other piece is the impact is noticeable, but not that big. It's certainly not enough to solve the climate change problem. And so when you look at the big picture of uh, greenhouse gas, global greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere and how that drives global changes in the Earth's system, it's not really significant and certainly not in a way where um, there isn't a direct connection between emissions today and the weather in, in, in three weeks. That's not how it works, right? There are connections between greenhouse gas emissions over decades, um, if not centuries, but certainly over the past decades, and climate trends over the coming decades. So it's not something that I would materialize or, or express as an impact in the next 12 to 18 months. Emily, there are so many more issues and topics to discuss related to climate risk and, and climate change, but we're just about out of time for today on our podcast program. So please tell our Sustainable Finance podcast subscribers where they can learn more about 427's work and how can investors and financial advisors reach you with questions about today's program? Of course. So there's two main ways to find out more about our research and that of our partners. One is our website, 427mt.com, as in, as in Mary, T as in Tom, um, where we have an insights page that has many years of publications on this topic and, and reports and analysis and, and podcasts and webinars and, and the likes. Um, there's also a website uh, on Moody's, esg.moody's.com that features not only our research, but also that of other affiliates and, and parts of Moody's with regard to ESG, to transition risk, um, to the impact of ESG on credit risk, on financial markets, et cetera. So that's also a great resource. And um, our contact info is on the, on the 427 website as well. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Emily Mazzucarati, founder and CEO of 427 and affiliate of Moody's for joining us today. And 
to our listeners, please join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast.